scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life. Those who find it are few. Good morning. You have to get into new habits when you end up preaching. Always forget to turn the mic back on. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to be together, as always, to worship the Lord and to proclaim his death until he comes. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to share a portion of God's word with you this morning. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I would like, uh, by means of um, invitation, if you will, there are many of you who... Uh, over the past year have expressed your desire in hosting a devotional or other event at your home uh, with the youth and bringing the youth in and and, and having them in. Some have expressed a desire to be more involved with our youth group activities as a chaperone, a sponsor, or even organizing different events, and I am thankful for that. And every time that someone asked me if they could do that, I said, next year, because we set our calendar in September. And so this September, your chance to get involved is coming up. That's going to be September 17th, and that's going to be before evening worship. It's going to be in the EOC at 4 o'clock, and we are going to go over our calendar for next year, and the entire congregation is invited to come to that if you want to be involved in ministering to our youth in some capacity in 2024. In the past, we've only opened this up to parents, but because we have had such an overwhelming interest from the rest of the body, which is wonderful, that's what we want, you're invited. So bring your ideas, bring your willingness to serve, and help us to make 2024 a wonderful year as we continue building up our families in their spiritual life and growing together as a congregation in multi-generational involvement. Again, September 17th, 2023, at 4 p.m. in the EOC. Be looking for slides and flyers and me nagging you for the rest of the time until then to come join us. What distracts you? Well, that introduction probably distracted you a little bit, uh, and so hopefully we can bring that back in and we can focus together. But what distracts you? We, we live in a world that is characterized by constant connectivity, endless information, the ability to focus our attention is becoming increasingly difficult. As we navigate this life we have been blessed with, it is crucial for us to examine the impact of distractions on our spiritual growth, on our relationships, and really just our our overall well-being. This morning, I'd like us to focus our minds for a brief time and push out all all of the distractions. Focus on understanding how to overcome the alluring pool of distractions and reclaim a life of purpose, a life of mindfulness and devotion to God. We are inundated by distractions on a daily basis. You can take the simplest of activity that you do in your daily life and see how many distractions come your way. Take driving, for example. Many of you drive. Some of you are learning to drive. Some of you will drive in the future. And some of you have experienced driving with your parents or grandparents. And you have probably been the distraction at some point in your life. But as you're driving along, there's a lot of things to think about and juggle. So many things fight for our attention and easily distract us. And outside of driving, that's really no different. You know, when we're driving, our goal is to get from point A to point B and on to point C and point D if if that's the case. But ultimately, we want to get back to point A if that was home. But all along the way, there are things that take away our attention. Oftentimes, we use navigation applications, navigation in our Uh, in our vehicles to get us from point A to point B, and even often sometimes that's a distraction in getting us to our destination. But outside of driving, it's really no different. With our walk with God, there are several countless things that fight for our attention, trying to keep us distracted from God. In, In driving, it could be something in the vehicle that distracts me. It could be the kids in the back arguing, fighting. Don't touch me. Don't even look at me. Daddy's looking at me. I will turn this car around. It could be the radio. 
I was listening to the radio a couple weeks back, and a contest was coming on. You could win tickets to see Jurassic World Live. I thought, man, that'd be cool. The kids would love that. Um, I'm sitting there. I'm at a red light. I'm waiting for the phone number. Go online to our website and register to win these tickets. I'm like, wait a minute. How many people are sitting around at home listening to the radio, waiting at their computer to do this? Most people are probably sitting in their cars listening to the radio, and they're encouraging people to go online and register. What happened to the days where you could just call the radio station and win tickets? Maybe you're driving along, you take a sharp turn, and you hear that HEB bag in the back shift, and then you hear a thud. And you go, oh, no. Was that the bread? Was that the eggs? Or was that the crispy, delicious bag of HEB tortilla chips that just got sent into crumbles? Distractions are everywhere. Now, those are just things inside the car. Alternatively, it could be something outside the vehicle that distracts me. Someone else's bad driving. A frustrating bumper sticker or 17 on the back of the vehicle in front of you. Someone not pressing the gas pedal fast enough at a green light. The weather, a billboard, or a hot air balloon. Is that Josh? <laughs> Similarly, with my walk with God, we can be disrupted by external things. My grumpy attitude, unmet desires, or a passion to succeed at other things. It could also be interrupted by external things, natural disasters, getting the job that you always wanted, or not getting the job that you always wanted, or just simply trying to meet other people's expectations, or maybe they're just your perceived expectations that they have for you. All these things try to get me distracted from God. When I'm distracted from him, I am likely to miss his guidance. And when I miss his guidance, I can end up in a pretty big mess. Things that distract us from following God are defined in Scripture as temptation. In Scripture, when we see someone falling into sin, we can easily see through the lens of hindsight and biblical record just how distracted that they were. You know, it all began in the garden. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. And while you're turning there, to keep with this premise of navigating life one turn at a time, it's important to know that the Bible gives us example by means of illustration from Jesus to give us understanding of this concept of guidance and avoiding distraction. And that's found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which we heard read in our scripture reading this morning. Jesus details two paths or two gates. And you can think of it as a fork in the road. And that road is life. And when you come to this fork, there are two paths. One that is narrow, that leads to eternal life, and one that is wide, one that is easy, and it leads to destruction. Jesus points out that that narrow gate, well, it's not easy. It's not easy to travel that road by the world's standards. And few take that path because of that perception. The wide gate, however, it's much easier to navigate. More people are going that way, so why not just go with the crowd and fit in and, and ride along? Well, see, that path is easier to navigate while you're on it because so many other people are going through it, but the end is destruction. These two paths don't converge in the same place. If you're traveling up to Amarillo, and hopefully you get there by morning, you, you hit to I-40, and you get two options. You either go west or you go east. If you turn left, you end up in Barstow, California, where I-40 ends. If you turn right and you keep going, you end up in Wilmington, North Carolina, on the east coast. You get to see the ocean. That's where I-40 begins. They don't loop around anywhere. They don't go up to Ohio and connect back and you come back down here. That's not how I-40 works. There is a beginning and there is an end. You get two options. You either get North Carolina or you get California. And I'll let you deduce which one is which in the illustration of Matthew 7, but let's, we won't go there this morning. <laughs> now, didn't expect an amen. On, well, sure I did. Okay, each, each decision that we come up on in life is a small fork in the road. Will we continue to follow the narrow path that Jesus has laid forth, or will we take the first easy exit we can? Distractions are there to take our focus off of the navigation that God has provided. Sometimes God even provides fellow Christians to help us keep on the right path. Sometimes, though, we tend to even fight against their instruction and encouragement. Sometimes those people that God puts in our, in our life to help encourage us and guide us along our way are our elders, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
our ministers, our deacons. And we tend to fight against their instruction and encouragement because it's not what we want to hear. When we fail to understand the instructions, or maybe we just choose to ignore them, well, we may have end up in a lake. Proceed straight. Well, we're 0 for 6. Last chance is the Elmhurst Country Club. Other side of the lake on the southeast side. I don't get it. I really don't get it. I thought this would work. Through everything I had at that guy, nothing. That's how it goes sometimes, you know? You lose everything, and everything falls apart, and eventually you die and no one remembers you. That is a very good point, Dwight. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. It means bear right. No. Up there. It said right, so take a right. <clears throat> no, 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 look. It, it means go up to the right, bear right, over the bridge, and hook up with 307. Make a right Maybe it's turn. a shortcut, Dwight. It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's look, a lake there. there. He knows where it's going. The, the light. machine knows. This is the light. Stop yelling at me. No, it's up there. There's no light here. <laughs> Remain calm. I have trained for this. Okay. Exit the window! Here we go. Make a U-turn, if possible. Look out for a in, in case you missed it there, the GPS said, make a U-turn, if possible. <laughs> now, we laugh at that. That's actually happened in the United States at least three times that I could count this year of people driving into a lake because their GPS told them to. <laughs> and when I saw those stories, I thought, wait a minute, the office did this years ago, but People are doing it because they're not using common sense a lot of times. Well, they're distracted. Michael was distracted by the sales call failures earlier in the day. He didn't use reason to follow the direction of the GPS, and he even ignored Dwight, who was giving him sound advice to follow the instructions properly or just help him to better understand the instructions of the GPS. We've all been in situations where a GPS has told us to turn left or right, and we're like, that's not possible. I cannot do that. So you have to look closer at the map. You have to look closer at the instruction that it's giving you to better, better discern which direction you need to go. But see, God has provided instructions that are clear to us as to what is right and what is wrong in his eyes. Much has been revealed to us in Scripture that we must trust and rely on. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for us to be successful at things in this life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that. When we ignore his instruction, when we don't take the time to learn his instruction, when we know we ought to, we may find ourselves on that wide path. And that destination of a lake that we're driving into, it's not a lake of water, it's a lake of fire. We know that this is the end for those who are outside of God because Revelation 20 verse 15 reveals to us that this is the fate of anyone whose name is not written in the book of life. Now let's turn our attention to the beginning. That's the end. But in the beginning, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, this is where it all starts. Starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden... But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, or the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Immediately, God has given Adam and Eve instruction. He's given them navigation to help them understand what is good and acceptable for them in the garden. He's given them two paths. He's given them everything in the garden. All the trees, all the fruit of the trees that you can eat. All of those, except... The tree that's in the middle. There's your two paths. Everything that's good, this is not good. Do this, don't do that. Here comes the distraction in verse 4. And the serpent says to the woman, you'll not surely die. That's not really a definitive answer, is it? If you ever ask somebody, hey, are, are we going to come over for, are you going to come over for dinner? Uh, surely not. There's no definitive answer there. But that's exactly what Eve wanted to hear. Because she told him her fear. The serpent goes on, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... 
that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now notice, Adam was with her. Adam, in the scenario that we just watched, is kind of like Dwight. He could have said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh-uh-uh, we shouldn't do that, but he didn't. He had the opportunity to be the spiritual leader that God made him to be, but he did not step up. And instead, he also fell into the temptation. Then the Bible says the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So from the very beginning, Satan has worked to distract man from following God. See, I grew up thinking that the fruit had miraculous abilities to grant this knowledge of good and evil to Adam and Eve. I also grew up thinking that the original sin was eating the fruit. However, I think both of those things ignore what is actually going on and what Scripture tells us. The first sin was when they stopped trusting God for all they needed. They ignored his instruction and they trusted in their own understanding or rather relying on a different source, a source, by the way, that they didn't even question what right he had to contradict God. She didn't say, oh, you know, I don't, who are you? She just took it and went with it. They sinned before that fruit ever touched their lips. And the fruit itself didn't grant them abilities to discern good and evil. It was at the moment that they disobeyed God and they knew they disobeyed God. Because when the distraction cleared, they recognized that they did evil. When they had already had all good provided for them plentifully throughout the garden. I can remember times when as a child and even as an adult that I did wrong. I knew that I did the wrong thing. And when it was revealed, the shame and the guilt that I felt from it made it very clear that doing the wrong thing is not the right way. Maybe you've been at work or school or or just working on a project and you didn't know exactly how to accomplish the task at hand. So instead of asking for help or going going to YouTube for a tutorial, you try to do it on your own only to fail miserably or make it worse even after eight trips to Home Depot. It's in those moments that you realize right and wrong. Had you just looked at the instructions, you would have seen what piece of Ikea furniture you should have been building. It was supposed to be a bench and not a bookshelf. Instructions are important. Sometimes you have to fail to understand the good from the bad. And we certainly see that in life. But with Adam and Eve, they were told what was good and what was bad. Very specific. There was no gray area here. But they were distracted. And their focus on that distraction, rather than God's instruction, led them into sin. Satan knows how to distract us from God. He's been perfecting it since, it's, since the beginning. The, the Bible says in Genesis 3 that he's crafty. And we're not talking like Hobby Lobby crafty. He is cunning he's devious and he knows how to twist things just right to pull us in he knows how to guise evil in the form of religiosity in order to lead millions astray he's done it from the beginning in the garden and he continues to do it today think about it god satan took the words of god that they would surely die he twisted them around for eve It's exactly what she needed. It's exactly what she wanted. And she even said the thing that she was worried about was dying. And he said, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the man behind the curtain, right? Don't worry about that. God's just trying to keep all the good stuff for himself. And thus the distraction allowed pride, lust, and desire to enter the heart of man. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. There are numerous examples in Scripture of man becoming distracted from God's directions and navigating the wide path instead of staying on the narrow. And in each scenario in which sin is recorded, <coughs> excuse me, distraction can be found. Moses and the rock. Aaron and the golden calf. Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire to the Lord. David and Bathsheba. David and the census. How about the apostles when they were concerned about what they were going to eat The apostles concerned about the storm while Jesus took a nap. And all the other things that the apostles were concerned about. How about Judas? You think he was distracted? 
How about Peter denying Christ or Peter refusing to eat with Gentiles or Ananias and Sapphira? We could do a year's worth of sermons on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday on all of these stories in the Bible that show the distraction and show the sin. These distractions, though, are all formulated around the three categories of sin and temptation that we find in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Here John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There you go. It's that easy, guys. These three things, avoid them. They're from the world and not from God. In the world, it's dying, meaning its end has been written and it will be destroyed. And with it, all of the desires that come from the world are going to pass away with it. But follow God. Do his will and you shall live. What more do we need? We could end right now. I could offer the invitation and that could be the lesson for you today. But I've got more time and I'm going to take it. There are three categories that John outlines here. Three categories of sin. And it's important to understand these categories of sin because you'll see them in your own life. But we also see them throughout Scripture. The first thing that he outlines is desires or lust of the flesh. This phrase refers to things that are done to fulfill desires of the body and or mind. And we see these things outlined in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. And they're outlined there as works of the flesh. And these things can be categorized or expressed in many different ways. First, it can be expressed sexually, fornication, adultery, or, or, or promiscuity. It can also be expressed socially, hatred, contentiousness, jealousies. But it can also be expressed physically, hunger, thirst. Now, those things in and of themselves, of course, are not sinful. They're natural things that our body goes through. However, the consumption of food and water... Uh, or beverage to quench thirst, the law of Moses, and numerous times throughout Scripture, those things have been used as temptations to draw people away from God. Just think about manna in the wilderness. Food for consumption. Beverage to quench thirst. It was a temptation, and it was a distraction for them. They were tired of it. They wanted what they wanted, or what they wanted what they had, rather, in Egypt. You have the desires of the eyes next. And now this phrase sounds similar to the first. However, there is a distinct difference here. This refers more to the things that uh, are the longing for the things that we see. And it's unlawful longing for the things that we can see. And this can be summed up in one word, and that's covetousness. Or a more modern term would be materialism. Worried about the things that we have. And lastly, there is pride of life. Pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 details why we should not boast in ourselves but find our boasting alone in God because it's he who provides. It is he who has done far more than man could ever accomplish. In our Bible class this morning, we were talking about Daniel and how Daniel throughout his life always gave glory to God. He always boasted in the Lord. It wasn't Daniel who was interpreting dreams but only God who provided who provided the interpretations. And of course, Daniel was held in high esteem by God. In fact, Gabriel tells him that he was treasured by God. Pride of life can pertain to several different things. Things based on age, experience, ancestry, past accomplishments, money, position, power, etc. Now, I want us to note in Genesis chapter 3 something very important. What did Eve perceive prior to eating the fruit? In verse 6, right after the serpent said that by disobeying their gods, their eyes, by disobeying God, their eyes would be opened and they would be like God, it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Do you see the three categories of sin there? She saw that the tree was good for food. Lust of the flesh. 
She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes. And she saw that it was desired to make one wise. There's pride. All three things of the world that are outlined in in 1 John were experienced by Eve before she ever ate the fruit. It was only after Adam and Eve experienced sin that they understood good and evil because they experienced evil firsthand. They had been living in the good. They had been experiencing the good, and now they've experienced evil. And now they have a knowledge of the difference between good and evil because they've had both. Their eyes were opened. Let's look at another distraction attempt in Scripture at the hands of Satan. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. And if you know your Bible, you know where we're heading here. Chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And for time's sake, we're not going to read all of this. But I want us to at least kind of go through it as I, as I kind of break it down. But Satan tempts Jesus three times. And I bet you can guess where we're going with this. Those three times line up with the three categories of sin that we see in 1 John chapter 2. The first is Satan's appeal to the lust of the flesh. Remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, wandering in the wilderness. He hadn't eaten, he hadn't drank, so he's hungry, he's thirsty. And so Satan comes up and says, hey, command these stones become bread. I know you're hungry, just turn these stones into bread. Jesus responds with scripture, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. There is more to life than just fulfilling physical desires, especially when it means taking unscrupulous measures to do so. Man is dependent upon the word of God to truly live. Satan then appears to, uh, appeals to the pride of life. And again, he challenges Jesus' identity here as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. And Satan sets Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple. He says, throw yourself down. And Satan, knowing that Jesus is using Scripture as his defense mechanism, Satan uses Scripture to help tempt And he quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. But Jesus responds back in kind, again with Scripture, again from Deuteronomy, the law, this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, the passage that Satan quotes is true, but it would be an abuse to use it purposely to test God, let alone done so by the Son of God, though God in the flesh. He still has the Uh, free will to choose whether or not to sin and he chooses not to he chooses not to throughout his entire life to the point where the bible tells us he was without sin he was perfect he was blameless he was the spotless lamb for our for our sake but satan has one more satan appeals to the desires of the eyes and you could even probably throw a little pride of life in here as well He takes Jesus to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he offers to give Jesus all the kingdoms if he'll just bow down and worship him. Jesus again responds with scripture, again from Deuteronomy 6, this time in verse 13. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut here. Jesus already knows that dominion over all the kingdoms of the world is his, but he has to suffer. He's going to have to die on a cross. He's going to have to be despised and rejected. But Satan says, you can get rid of all of that. You don't have to do any of those things. Just bow down and worship me. Take two minutes. That's all you need. Have you ever been walking in a store somewhere and a salesperson comes up? It's like, I just need two minutes. Two minutes. It's annoying. That's what Satan's doing. You just need this brief, it's just a brief moment. How many times in our life have we had those moments? Just two minutes. Just one glimpse. Just one taste. Just one. Jesus doesn't take the easy path. The easy path is to fall into that temptation. The easy path is to be distracted by those things and go into it. The difficult thing is to say no. 
Jesus himself was thrown the same distractions that we are thrown today. It is why this incident between he and Satan in the wilderness is important to understand when it pertains to 1 John chapter 2 and the categories of sin. First, it shows us a very stark contrast between the first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus, as Paul refers to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first fell. The second stood firm and remained focused on God and his word. Both had the instruction. One chose to ignore it. The other chose to uphold it. Jesus quoted scripture as his defense against the distractions and temptations Satan sent his way. He used the navigation that God provided. Adam strayed from the instruction and trusted instead in the sinstruction of Satan. Second, we can trust in Jesus all the more as our high priest. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been there. He's experienced it firsthand, and we see it here in Matthew chapter... Uh, wow, lost it. You know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Hebrews says, He is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Thirdly, we can see clearly in the life of our Savior an example of what Paul proclaims in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, which should give us hope, it should give us confidence when faced with the forks in the road. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Meaning, none of us are special. None of us get to have our own special temptations that no one else gets to experience. We're not alone. God is faithful, Paul says, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so we get to our sermon this morning. Thank you for bearing through that introduction. Eric has taught me a lot in our first year with him, and that is how to properly introduce a sermon. If we are to safely navigate the narrow path set before us, recognizing that we are not perfect as Jesus is perfect, how can we possibly avoid all of the distractions? Well, as we read earlier in 1 John chapter 2, don't love the things of this world and do the will of the Father. It's those two things. There's your two paths. But it helps to know that we have examples in God's word to help us navigate the distractions when they rear their ugly head. And we must know that distractions will come. They're all around us. But knowing how to navigate them properly can aid us in an abundant life in Christ. Turn over to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And here we have the story of, of Mary and Martha. Of course, we've met Martha before, the sister of Lazarus. But as they're going along their way, it says in verse 38, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she is a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Doesn't that sound like a little sister, like tattling on her big sister or vice versa? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered her, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was distracted. And the scripture tells us very clearly that she was distracted. She was worried about all the little things, but not the big thing, which was the Savior of the world being in her home and hearing his teachings. How many times have we gone through life and we're so worried about all the little things, all the, all the things on our to-do list, all the things that, that fill our brain on a daily basis, and we put aside our devotion to God? God plays second fiddle to all the other worries and anxieties that we have. Notice where Martha's focus needed to be. It needed to be on the instruction. It needed to be on the word of God that was coming from Jesus. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve others. And Martha was more concerned about what would seem to be a good thing. It's good to serve people when they come to your home. 
But in her distraction, she failed to see what was of the most importance. And that was what Mary was focused on, which is what she also needed to be focused on and what we need to be focused on today as well. And that is the instruction of God. Are we putting that as a high priority on our list? Turn over to Genesis chapter 39. And here we see Joseph. According to Scripture, a very good-looking young man. So good-looking that, well, he drew the desires of his master's wife, Potiphar's wife. The distraction of sexual immorality was presented to Joseph not long after he was promoted to overseer of the household of Potiphar. I want you to listen Listen to Joseph's response after Potiphar's wife asked him to sleep with her for the first time in verses 8 and 9. He says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than, than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. Notice that he doesn't say anything about sinning against his master Potiphar, but his devotion was toward God. His focus wasn't on himself. It was focused on the abundant blessings that God had provided him and knowing what is right and what is wrong. But Potiphar's wife didn't stop asking. In verse 10, we see that it continues day by day. Some of the distractions that consistently nag at us often find victory in pulling us away. Just constantly nagging at us. You just want to give in so it'll go away. Take my daughter, for example. She will say mama or dada nonstop until we answer her and give her our attention. And once she gets our attention, she will repeat the things she wants over and over, no matter how many times we say no. I want this. And she's probably doing it right now. And she will keep going until she either gets what she wants or starts crying because we refuse. Parents, you know this struggle all too well. Kids, you've been there. You were the ones causing it. But you, I think we all understand this. We have a decision to make between giving them what they want so they'll stop asking or just to avoid the meltdown that we know is going to come. But I think Joseph's a good example of why we may need to stand firm, parents. Why we need to say no when we know the answer should be no. And if that doesn't work, do what Joseph did. Run. Parents, you hear me? If your kid keeps going, just run. (laughs) Come back, but run. I have found my wife in a closet a time or two because she ran. And we see in verse 11 that Joseph does exactly that. Joseph had had enough. Maybe he was close to caving in. Maybe he had purposed in his heart that if it escalated anymore, he would just flee because that is what happened. Before it was just asking, before it was just words, before it was just distraction, but now she grabbed him. Now she grabbed the clothing and it escalated and he ran. He didn't fall victim to the constant distractions Potiphar's wife lay before him. Sometimes we have to run. Sometimes we have to get away from that which distracts us. We have to get away from the temptation. In the short term, it didn't benefit Joseph in a worldly sense. The narrow path isn't easy. He went to jail because Potiphar's wife lied. However, ultimately, it benefited greatly that he remained faithful to God, that he remained on that narrow path, and he did not commit the sin that sat before him because God lifted him back up. He got out of prison. He was promoted, and he was greatly blessed. We can learn from Joseph's example many things, but I think Solomon's words in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 27 to his son will aid us in application further. He says, My son, be attentive to my words. Be attentive to my instruction. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it uh, flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. 
Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Kids these days, that makes me old, I think, when I say something like that. But kids these days will never know the struggle of going to MapQuest and printing off turn-by-turn directions to get from point A to point B. They probably can't even pick up an atlas to find a path from point A to point B. And some adults probably struggle with those same skills because technology has made it to where you don't need those skills anymore. But whenever I go on a road trip, I view my route from start to finish. I look at the area that I'm going to. I try to become familiar with it. I look at different map sources, not just Google, not just Apple Maps, but I'll use Waze, I'll use other things to help me fully understand where I'm going and the area that I'm going to. Do we do the same thing with the Bible? Are we studying the map to know the pathways that God has provided to us? Do we understand his instructions? Are we storing them up in our hearts as Psalm 119 tells us to do so that we can keep our pathway pure? Focus on the instructions. That's what Solomon is saying. He says, focus on the path. Look forward. Don't look back and don't stray from the path. These things Solomon passes on to his son is exactly what we need to hear and focus on today. Parents, these are things that you need to pass on to your children as well by example and by teaching. So many read the instruction and either choose to ignore it or they twist it to fit what they want rather than trusting what God wants. Many focus on the past instead of trusting God with the future that he's promised. They think that they're too far gone to be saved when all they really need to do is turn around. They need to make a U-turn and they need to look at the path that God has provided them through, their son, Jesus, through his son, Jesus Christ. Many don't ponder the path of their feet. Instead, they listen to the world who says, listen to your heart or do whatever makes you happy. Folks, happiness is of the world. It's one of those desires that we have that will pass away with the world. But joy is from the Lord. Happiness is fleeting and it passes away, but joy is eternal. And I couldn't express a better example of this than the memorial service for Homer Bradshaw Sr. that I had the joy of attending this week. That was the most joyful service that I've ever been a part of. And I told my wife, I said, I hope my funeral is as joyful as that, that people are rejoicing and that my impact has been passed on to future generations that they can have that same joy that I have. We're not seeking happiness in this life. We are seeking the joy of the Lord. That should be our driving force. Some say they don't even have time to read the instructions that we've been given. According to a study done by Zipia, the average American spends just over seven hours a day looking at a screen. Nearly four hours of that is on their phone. That's the average. If you have the ability to view your screen time on your phone, and iPhone users, there is an app for tracking this. I don't know about Android, but I'm sure it's there. Look at your daily average. In fact, I got my average today in Bible class. I got an alert. My weekly average last week, and I am ashamed to share this, but I'm going to share it, of screen time on my phone was five hours and 45 minutes a day average. Email, social media, news, podcasts. If you're spending three plus hours a day on your phone, but you're not studying God's word, guess what? You have the time. You have the time. But perhaps... The distraction has won its place in your heart as to what gets your focus. Has your phone, social media, entertainment, news, politics, whatever it may be, have they become an idol that has replaced the rightful place of God on your priority list? Those are all distractions. And just like Mary and Martha, are we being distracted from the good thing and focusing on all the little things? There's much more that we can cover on this topic, and we will. So I invite you back this evening as three of our young men from the youth group 
we'll be delivering lessons on how to avoid distractions that pop up in life. And I'm really excited to hear what they have prepared because I didn't give them a softball. I gave them some difficult topics to present lessons on. And I'm prayerful that they have done so and that it will be fruitful for all of us. So please plan to return this evening to hear those lessons and to support our young men as they lead our worship time together. But to close our time together this morning, I want you to consider all that we've discussed thus far and ponder on the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13 that we read earlier. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. <clears throat> but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you think that you are immune to the distractions and temptations of this world, Paul says, take heed, because you're going to fall. We are all going to face temptations. Temptations will come, and they will present themselves on a daily basis. But Paul says God is faithful, and he's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, some take that to mean that God won't let temptations come my way. Well, if you think that's the case, then you think that you're not able Others take it to mean I'm able to overcome every temptation without any work or thought on my behalf because God's going to take care of it. That's not what this verse is saying. I know, I know Paul says that with every temptation, God's going to provide a way out, but he says your ability, you won't be tempted beyond your ability, and your ability is up to you. You have to make the choice to train your ability because your ability is nothing unless you train it. It's just like lifting weights. If you want to lift 150 pounds, you're going to have to train for it. You just can't walk up to the bar and lift 150 pounds, unless you're Samson. You have to train. Your ability is nothing without the Word of God to instruct it. And your ability will fail if you don't trust God, if you don't trust His will, and you don't trust His Word. Now, what about the way of escape that God's provided? Does that mean that any time a temptation presents itself before you that there's going to be an exit hatch somewhere that you can just jump out of and you don't have to worry about it? No, of course not. Jesus has already defined this for us in Matthew chapter 7. There are two paths. When distraction tries to confuse you on which path to take, turn to Jesus. When the fork in the road looks really good, it looks really easy one way, you just jump off the exit and you'll be happy and everything will be sunshine and rainbows. And the other side, well, it would be really tough when it comes to how the world would look at you, how the world would respond to you. The option is turn to Jesus. When the choice in a matter is between the ways of this world and the Lord, turn to Jesus. The way of escape is to stay on the narrow path. The way of escape is Christ. And there's a but. If you falter... If you make that wrong turn into the lake like Michael did, do as that GPS suggested and make a U-turn. Not when possible, immediately. Repentance means turn around. It means make a U-turn. Turn away from the sinful path that you're on and turn to Jesus. In this life, there is but two pathways, and there is one that leads to salvation and one that leads to destruction. And you can't pave your own path. You can't set up a third path somewhere else and hope that you're going to get the, to the destination that you want to. The paths have already been set up. You can't hop in a hot air balloon and skip the gates because you don't know which way the wind's blowing that day. But you need to make the choice, and you need to make it of your own free will and enter by the proper gate. God has made the path of escape possible through Jesus Christ, his only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, that whoever believes in him, he gives the right to be called his child, John chapter 1 tells us. The narrow path is not impossible to navigate. The world makes it difficult. God makes it really easy. It is the straight and narrow it's not the thin and impossible. That was the lesson title of Eric's lesson that he gave at PTP last night, and I can't wait to hear it. We cannot live perfect lives, but we can recognize the distractions that stand in our way, and we can avoid them at all costs. And if we fall, 
And if we fail, remember that Christ walks the path with us. And when we turn away from the distraction and focus back on the path, we reach out to him for forgiveness. He goes to the Father on our behalf as our mediator, as our great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been there. But that requires our participation in asking for the forgiveness of turning yourself away from the sin that distracted you. Don't wait to restore your feet onto the right path. For you may find yourself at the end of the wide path in the lake of fire. And at that point, just as Michael and Dwight, it's too late to make a U-turn. To become his child, to be joined with Christ, to walk through the narrow gate, Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He says no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the narrow gate. We have to go through him. To be in him, to be in Christ, means you have to listen to his teachings, you have to hear his teachings, you have to believe his teachings, and you have to obey his teachings. And Paul, in in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, tells us exactly how one gets into Christ. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by immersion into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We enter into Christ by being buried in water, submerged under the water, raised to walk in newness of life. The old has died, and behold, a new creation has come. Turn to Jesus this morning. Trust in him to make straight your paths and remain focused on him. If you've put Christ on in baptism and you've walked through that narrow gate and you have strayed from the narrow path, you've taken an exit to the wide and easy path, make a U-turn this morning. Turn back to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess those things and know that they have been forgiven and are now in the rearview mirror. If we can assist you with these things this morning, if you have any need that we can help you with, if you desire to study these things further, or if you're ready this morning to make the change that God calls you to make, then now is the time that you can come forward while we stand and sing.